You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Deliberations of Doom is back with our second episode on the topic of virus horror films, or I guess that's not fair, because not all the films we're talking about are strictly speaking horror films, but as I said in our previous episode, which if you haven't listened yet, you should, there's nothing more scary to me, really, than the idea of a virus that starts killing people, so even if you're doing it as, like, just a drama, it's fucking terrifying. I think it counts under the oeuvre of Deliberations of Doom. I think it's important to see as many of these as possible, just to see how everyone's handling it, you know, and see see if we can... (laughs) plan and and a better idea for the different prongs now that are going out. The important part is the idea of massively contagious infection more than anything else, whether or not the mechanism is strictly viral. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I mean, and what is viral and what is a viral infection? We will be looking at different interpretations of what that means in today's episode. In the last one, we looked at Mask of the Red Death, the Roger Corman, Vincent Price film. And then we looked at George Romero's film, The Crazies, the original one, not the remake. And you go back and listen to those. But today we are moving up to 1975 with one of the first times we've ever done a double dip on Deliberations of Doom. We're talking about David Cronenberg's Shivers, which was also known as The Parasite Murders, and they came from within, which was the American title when it was released here. What was the original script? Does anyone remember? It was called like Orgy of the Viral. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They meant, I saw something about that. It was like, yeah, the orgy of the world. Some some crap. It had orgy involved, for sure. And this was Cronenberg's third feature film, but it was the first film he ever did that was longer than just barely over an hour. The first two were 63 minutes, and it's decidedly his first horror film. But before we get into that, let's introduce everybody. I am Chris, your host, and joining me is... I'm Drew. I'm a co-host, I assume. <laughs> you, you are a co-host. <laughs> right, that right. is true. Yes. Mm-hmm. And? Alan, also a co-host. And? I am Madeline, and I am here to say pretty things, I suppose. <laughs> you are also a co-host. <laughs> Excellent. Pretty, what do you consider pretty things during a virus horror episode? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I assume that if you say anything in the right tone of voice, it will go over well. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just all sing a rousing chorus of some of my favorite things. <laughs> Demons and monsters and pigmen and cryptids. Some of my favorite things. I don't know about where pigmen came from. I guess that's a thing. It, it totally is a thing, but that's like for another episode. <laughs> Probably counts as a cryptid. Anyway, so we are talking about Shivers. Like I said, directed by the great David Cronenberg. Before we got started, I was saying I, I'm hard-pressed to say whether Cronenberg or Carpenter is my favorite horror director. I think both of them had such a solid, incredible, unassailable run of horror films that they're all great there are filmmakers who have made one or two films that are right up there like Wes Craven or George Romero but like nobody's ever had a solid and entire like just continual run like these two guys do and this was the start of Cronenberg's getting into horror with a film 
that was so shocking to the Canadian government who paid for the thing <laughs> that they weren't sure what to do with it. And there was a lot of confusion because it was one of the first Canadian funded films to actually make a real money. <laughs> was it like the most successful film up to but that time or close to it? It was the yeah. most successful Canadian film and most certainly the most profitable one that was paid for specifically by the Canadian government. But yeah, the parliament, they were mad about it, but also like, well, we actually got our money back literally the week after the film was released and that never ever happens Uh, and it brought a lot of attention to the Canadian film community as well not all of it positive a negative review of the film called it the most repulsive film the critic had ever seen amongst other really terrible shit Good. which not only had Cronenberg had trouble there's a break between this and his next film because he had a lot of trouble getting funding for the next project but he got kicked out of his apartment because the landlord had seen this and quoted a morality clause. He just didn't want Cronenberg releasing little shivers in that apartment. Uh, I'm sorry, was my horror movie exactly what it was supposed to be? I apologize. This is still, even today, a startling, disturbing, and really thoroughly weird and original film, albeit there's some feelings about these parasites in here that might seem familiar, and Cronenberg, at least continually insists, although I don't think he really knows for sure, that Dan O'Bannon, who created Alien, saw this movie and just flat out ripped off his parasite for the parasite idea, the chest bursting thing. There's one scene in particular for sure where you kind of see it just sitting underneath the the, the skin. Mm -hmm. This takes place in a luxury apartment complex called Starliner Towers, right outside of Montreal. And it starts with like a really disturbing scene with this doctor, Dr. Emile Hobbs, who just flat out graphically murders a young woman, slicing over her stomach, pouring acid into it, and then he murders himself. And you're like, what the Fuck! It's a hell of a setup. My critical analysis analysis of my notes is like this is one way to start a movie. (laughs) I would actually the movie doesn't start quite diving off into that. At the beginning, you have this beautiful like hello, welcome to the Starline. Da da da. da." I'm watching this movie on Voodoo for free, and so there are advertisements beforehand. And right now, we're in the midst of a pandemic still, and a lot of people have lost their houses or are in the need to sell their houses. And so before this movie starts, there's a very normal real estate ad that I'm like, okay, whatever, don't think about. I watch this part of the movie and it's like, it's exclusive. We're 12 miles away from the city. And it's like, the city's not even there, but you can get to it. And so I see the same ad that I don't think anything about beforehand. And then, you know, the first commercial break comes and I'm like, oh, this is overly comforting. You're talking in the same terms and you're trying to convince me. And it made everything absolutely even that much more horrifying. That little bit of this is comfortable and normal, except it's not. And we've certainly seen the same idea explored in other things with the whole like, look, it's, I mean, it's the Titanic. Look, it's the best thing. It's so good. Look how comfortable it'll be. And then it's not going to be at all. We find this guy, Nick, who finds their bodies, leaves without calling the police. Another person there finds the bodies, Roger St. Luke, who does call the police. They find out that this doctor had been working with the doctor who killed this woman and then killed himself on a project to quote, create a parasite that can take over the function of a human organ, which wouldn't by definition not be a parasite and be a symbiote there is a line between parasite and symbiote and a symbiote typically means at least as far as like strictly biological scientific terms is that there is benefit to both right. but a parasite i believe by definition yeah. takes more than it should it so you're takes. absolutely correct yeah. yeah and i know this because i've had multiple ex-girlfriends who <laughs> referred to me in that time. <laughs> 
<laughs> they all love me. Every last one of them. <laughs> True. Anyway, uh, so Nick, the guy we saw first discover the body, he's kind of feeling sick. He goes home and he graphically vomits up one of these said parasites that immediately goes and attacks somebody in a very like alien style. It heads straight for the face and the mouth. It wants to get into the mouth. Yeah. This is a series of people sort of starting to encounter these things and get infected, but it becomes clear that they're not turning into zombies. They're not dying from the virus. The virus makes them into sex maniacs, basically, who will even kill your ass if they have to, to get the thing in you. Because its biggest drive outside of fucking you is to vomit up a parasite into somebody else's Re- mouth reproduce and get them the infected parasites. as well. If you're in close contact with somebody else, I can reproduce and we can all reproduce together to have the orgy of the world. It's described as a combination of aphrodisiac and venereal disease that will hopefully turn the world into one beautiful mindless orgy. Yes! Yes, that is in my notes! <laughs> <laughs> I want that on my tombstone. I started thinking that maybe Cronenberg, all the, like so many movies that he saw later, was like, wait, didn't I already make that? I mean, like the hidden or, you know, or society play with similar ideas. Mm-hmm. Most there, certainly, there's there are a couple of shots in which there's a doctor on the phone, and behind him there is a filing cabinet that actually ha- it has like a bumper sticker on it, and it says something about children dot 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 like the most like vicious and prolonged of venereal diseases and i was like hey, yes the doctor basically his idea was that modern humans had gotten over intellectual with uh, yeah we we kind of proved that you had a wrong point by today's standards <laughs> <Slightly>. <laughs> like i i don't think that's actually true and they've gotten away from their primal impulses which in the 70s was weirdly a reoccurring theme in a lot of things like oh we need to return to our primal selves to become who humans were meant to be which is Woodstock. Uh, no. <laughs> and we follow a couple characters here as you're kind of wondering who's infected, who's not infected. Like who's regular horny and who's... Yeah, who's regular horny. <laughs> who's had sex horny? with this one girl lately? Apparently more people than we thought initially. Uh, meanwhile, Nick is just going around trying to fuck and infect as many people as he can. <laughs> and he's not a bad looking guy, so that doesn't work well for humanity's future. But, uh, it works well for the parasite. But it, it does work very well for the parasite. <laughs> if you're on the parasite side, then you're like, go Nick! Go Nick! Go Nick! Team Nick. There's people trying to figure out, like, slowly discovering what is going on, realizing this is going to be a real problem, and then it eventually escalating into the point that this is a full-on, like, similar to zombies in the sense that these people are, like, coming at you in masses to try and infect you, but just not necessarily in the exact same zombie way. And after they infect you, you'll get laid. So it's not really the worst thing in the world, I guess, at oh, yeah, least no, on see paper. That, overall, I really did love this movie. But there's this part towards the end, and up to this point, everybody who's been infected is pretty much, like, coherent and still a person. They're just like, I really, really want to do the dirty with I'm you. I'm so horny. And then there's this bit right at the end with the pool and he's like, he's found two of the infected women in the pool, one of which he had been spending a long period of time with up to this point. But then there's this drove of people and it is all very classic zombie, slow walking staggery. But then at the very end of the film, you see everybody driving away. We're going out to in- spread and infect the horny out into the rest of the world. And so that was the only point in the movie for me in which there was like kind of a this is entirely different. What is this disconnect? Because up to this point, everybody's a normal human who's just super duper horny and willing to take what they want. And then we have this just very Dawn of the Dead uh, yeah. zombie scene. And that was, that was my only issue with pretty much the whole movie. It which, does feel like a studio note or something or like an add-on, yeah, which didn't happen. It, it wasn't, it didn't cohere. But I love that they got like kind of all the horniness out of them in the pool and then they could be like, <laughs> 
calmly drive away. I was just impressed with how how like well they still knew how to drive, and that was that was still not. An issue. I liked the coupling off that we see at the end of the movie because you've seen these people interacting, and then like just the different groups of people in different cars is like ah, you guys clearly got it on. The final shots are <laughs> such a homage, you know, not, to, 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 not a Living Dead too. I mean, you oh, see yeah. just just the way they're moving everything. That it's off to start swinger clubs, and <laughs> which in fact this ends like the crazies does, where they're like oh the news reports are showing there's sexual attacks happening in Montreal, mm-hmm. the nearby city. And most people are like, where? What club? Where? <laughs> ooh, ooh, what? That's disgusting. Where? I mean, yeah, and we should note that, like, these parasites are making people horny, but it's not like, it's a rape parasite. Like, oh, yes. It's like horny, it's yes, but they're out there just to, like, they will kill you to bang you. Oh, yeah. Sort of type of situation. Yeah, no, they are, they are physically aggressive and violent. You know, yeah. they will, like, if you're trying to stop them from giving you the parasite, they will murder you if that's what and it comes no, down to. No, no, no. Have some parasites. Yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> There are some slight inconsistencies, but I don't even know if I would call it that with some of the behavior of the different infected. Like, some people, it's, like, wildly aggressive, almost like the crazies, where they're just, like, really violent. Some are, like, very seductive, just, like, to lure people into it. And some people seem to have their wits about them more than others. I think it's purposeful in a way where it's not one note. It's, like, whatever means this parasite is affecting different people, Mm. but the ends are all the same. Like, Absolutely. It, yeah. it, it affects different people different ways. Obviously, it affects the way your mind works. You yeah. know, re- regardless of which part of your body it's replacing or interfering with, it affects your mind. And so the difference between being seductive versus lay the fuck down or I'm going to claw your eyes yeah. out. Like Some people are missionary style. Some people are... Ch- <laughs> Some people are chips, dips, chains, and whips, and other people just read Twilight fanfiction to each other. Oh, so. let's replace vampires with butt plugs now. We were saying before that this isn't adapted from a novel? J.G. Ballard, who wrote Crash, which David Cronenberg later did an adaptation yes. of, which is one of his later really good films, but it is Very deeply perverse. disturbing and perverse. Yeah. It's, it, but that's everything Ballard wrote. He also wrote a book called High Rise, which came out, I believe, right around the same time as this. And a lot of people have compared this to high-rise. But Cronenberg has kind of vacillated back and forth the degree to which he felt like he was going for the same thing on that, which is interesting, because high-rise is decidedly a attack on classism. And there's aspects of that here. There's definitely a lot of hedonism in high-rise. But, the, but it's yeah. floor to floor. Yeah. Yeah. There's a t- different... Yeah. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I think it came out the same year, I believe, the book and this movie. So, mm-hmm. so Cronenberg, maybe he was just reading it at the time. and it, it Maybe some of it melted into yeah. his it project. It like that classic parallel thoughts things, like these like luxury apartment buildings and stuff like that of that nature it's like it's a similar i'm sure like you know they open with that advertisement for a reason it's something that's probably new in the world of these type of condominiums of like high class like different levels so it it makes sense that it would creep into like different art there was also a porn film that came out called high rise in 1973 and i would not know that unless it was filmed in new york city and you're just a big john Uh uh-huh right Uh, um i did see disco dolls in 3d but (laughs) I, i had to leave uh about halfway through. I mean, whoever watches more than 10 or 15 minutes of a porn <laughs> <It's> true. <film>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My girlfriend at the time now, uh, wife thought it would be a hot date to go and see these a re-release that was happening on 35mm. And She seems like a cool lady. Yeah, I was like, that's, that's, that's a great <laughs> idea for, for a date. And she, she thought it would really uh, excite us. And she hadn't obviously seen any 70s porn before. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really just Bow, a lot of hair. Yeah. That's yeah, but um, you know, the previews were more interesting. But it was it was a really great night, and they actually had the composer of the film was there to do a Q and A. So this is back when you could actually get an orchestral score for a porn <laughs> film. Yeah, and the, the, you should check it out. It's a it's like a disco song. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, those, those were like theatrical releases pre video. I think like in pre Jaws when like the blockbuster started. Like a lot of times, like top 15, 20 movies were 
X-rated movies. Well, what was they, it? like, earned a shit ton at the box office. I mean, yeah. uh, they had uh, a budget for Behind it. the Green Door, mm-hmm. Deep Throat, films like that were playing to, like, sold-out houses yeah, night after night. Street, yeah. uh, you, you should watch the uh, show that's set in New York City during the Deuce, Pona, The Deuce, yeah, yeah. which is a great exploration of that period of time mm-hmm. and how porn started, how it exploded, how they were spending lots of money on it, how the mob got involved, and how it all kind of died away in the way that it was like these people were celebrities Humans be- are because what? of the uh yeah because of the uh, because of video coming out there's no real reason to put theatrical releases and a bunch of people who were like didn't fancy themselves actual directors they just wanted to make money started churning out movie after mm-hmm. movie that were just collections of scenes so you know the best porn films from the set no I wonder if anybody was turned on by shivers <laughs> oh, sure. there are yeah. exciting things yeah, I was gonna say there are not shivers. bits of it that are terrible at all there are moments where I was like oh. it is it is terrible <laughs> Titillating, there's no question. And it's supposed, it's supposed to be both titillating and then by equal turns disturbing. But Cronenberg was interesting. Like, first off, like I said, he vacillated in thoughts on this because he was asked to before Ben Wheatley directed uh, High Rise, the adaptation just what, five, six years ago, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, he was asked to do it and said that, didn't I already make this film in reference to Shivers? Although I think he was mainly joking because so many people had drawn the connection. But this is a great quote about Cronenberg on this where you go, every virus film ever, you're like, yeah, viruses are bad. You don't want this. But Cronenberg didn't necessarily feel that way about uh-huh. Shivers. He said, I don't think natural selection, as Darwin understood it, is really at work anymore as far as human evolution is concerned. I think something more along the lines of nuclear disaster is perhaps a natural part of our evolution. It may be a strange philosophy, I'm not sure. But my instinct seems to suggest that we were meant to tamper with everything and have done, and that this will reflect back on us and change us. And like Cronenberg's films, quite a few of them deal with the intersection of new technology with humanity and the evolution of humanity usually literally like technological things interacting with biological things yeah, yeah. usually in a very horrifying results yeah. but not necessarily science paranoia either yeah like a lot of them are just like maybe you should have like done more testing first <laughs> I, I mean it, it is interesting especially with so many of the political things that are going on in the world as far as reproductive things are concerned but we do see in like the last 40 years especially in the united states where we have a lot of medical help which is obviously a very good thing but where we also have like an incredibly high rate of cesareans more than pretty much any other developed nation in the world where we are seeing things like a lot of women have hips that are too narrow to push a child through we are not through I I don't want to say fault or anything else, but through our own choices, like pug dogs and turkeys, in some aspects, we are making it difficult for ourselves to reproduce simply because of what we consider attractive and what we consider desirable. There are definite changes that are happening to the body of our society because we are animals and we breed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, human sexuality is such a nebulous web of strange influences based on shit that happened to us when I were young and our current (laughs) culture that it's like... (laughs) Cronenberg has always been very interested in that shit. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, quite a few of his films really specifically deal with this most notably of course Videodrome right. you know uh, which we've Videodrome, talked about the brood. the show even The, the Fly brood. has like a lot of weird like evolutionary like sexual I would say impulses. Dead Ringers yeah is another it's, one it's all in there he, Crash these are people who get sexually excited by car accidents <laughs> 
what's the line in Shivers at the end? It's like old old flesh is erotic flesh. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah. of like planting the seed of video drama. I've yeah. known so, so many speak. things yeah. over my time. <laughs> I know that not everybody takes to some of these early seventies films that are so I don't know disturbing and weird. Like I know people who've seen Rabid. Like some of the young kids who follow us are like saw Rabid because they they know how much we're like every Cronenberg's we're seeing, <laughs> and they were like, I do not get why you like this movie. I'm like, wait for another ten years and give it another that's try. Yeah, Once you're a little old. I'm, I'm honestly like. I'm a shivers over rabbit guy. Like I, don't, I appreciate rabbit, but like I'm not going back to watch it. It doesn't call to me. Yeah, I would like, really uh, watch shivers. Shivers right? like. Shivers is the better of the two films. It's I really don't good. With yeah. You. Yeah. It's really good. I think Rabbit is good, but it's almost in some ways a lot more restrained, maybe overly restrained for Cronenberg. Whereas the brood, he makes Shivers look like it's the restrained one by comparison where he goes, Oh, oh, you like that. You want to see more of that, do you? Well, here you go. And that's, that's one of those things that I appreciated about this movie, especially as far as more of like the sci-fi horror goes. I absolutely fucking get off on people having some form of explanation for the actual mechanics of how a disease is spread. Noted. So, like, this and, um, <laughs> like, like virus, like we're going to talk about, and Pontypool, even if it's not entirely scientifically perhaps what we would consider sound, the actual concept of it, I really, really enjoy the explanation of, and that will come back when we talk about one of the newer movies that I did not enjoy. Which we're about to. But anybody have any last things they want to say about Shivers before we move on here? You know, I got to see the the 40th anniversary of this, the restoration that Tiff did at Stanley Film Fest at the old Park Theater. It's like one of the oldest operating theaters. It was so great to see it with not not only just in high def, but with a crowd that I'd never seen before and see how, how people react to it now. And it's still... Shocking as hell. Oh, yeah. There was an earlier disconnect that I had because we talked about how this virus wants to get into you either via sexual contact, but mainly it was mouth-to-mouth kissing or I'm going to crawl down your gut. There is the scene where we have our very lovely, beautiful British lady character, um, and she's in the bathtub. And this thing comes up her drain and presumably crawls into her lady space. And the thing that got me about this scene is that, oh, wow, I am clearly experiencing pain in a very sensitive part of my body. Let my hands reach for and grab everywhere but the part of my body that is in pain. And I think that is like the least natural human reaction. Doesn't matter if we know if a wasp is stinging us. If something hurts on our body suddenly, we're grabbing for that shit. And that that just scene in the movie, I was like, why are you you're grabbing everywhere except your crotch. Why? Yeah, why? Like, seeing that, I never realized that. Uh, but that shot is like, had to be like in Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Like that shot. It's like the same shot. And also like, I remember like when I first saw Slither, I had not seen this. And I've seen Night of the Creeps. And I was like, oh, he's doing like Night of the Creeps thing. I didn't realize how much of these little guys from Shivers are also like influenced on that Slither movie. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's really mixed between that and Night of the Creeps, but... I like mean, that shot, I was like, oh my god, like, this is the shot. This is a film that your general casual horror fan has probably not seen, but any serious horror fan has seen. James Gunn has definitely seen yeah, like, oh. No question. <laughs> <laughs> this movie could explain James Gunn, you yeah. know, just uh, point blank. The last thing I was going to say is that this stars Lynn Lowry, who we mentioned in the last episode, who was in the, one of the stars of The Crazy. She's one of the big stars here as well. And then... And really one of the biggest selling points of this film that probably is one of the reasons it performed as well as it did was that Barbara Steele was one of the big stars here. And she was a big name cult movie actress, if you will. I mean, she was, yes, the poster girl and dual role holder in Mario Bava's fantastic and seminal Black Sunday. But 
Also, she was the sexy lead star of Dark Shadows, the television show, which was a phenomenon. And she was even in fucking Fellini's Eight and a Half. So, like, she was a big name. And she definitely was a draw to get people in here. And she's super hot in this movie, too. You're like, damn, Barbara Steele, you still got it. You still got it, Barbara Steele. (laughs) My last thought of this is, I don't know if all y'all watched the rest of development. The line where Job's he pitching did. his city, where <laughs> Job's pitching his like development, and he's like, check your lease, pal, because you're living in fuck city. Dude, <laughs> that just kept going over and over in my fuck head. City. This is like Job's fuck dream apartment. City. The only film that we're talking about this week that I had a hundred percent never even heard of before we started saying we're going to do a virus episode is this 1980 film called Virus. It was also known in Japan where it initially came out as Virus the end, which as I mentioned in the last episode when we were talking briefly about this, this is by Kinji Fukusaku, who did the Japanese half of the classic war film Tora Tora Tora. He did arguably the best Yakuza film ever made, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which is terrific. In fact, most of the sequels are terrific, too. And then he did, I remember, one of the biggest cult phenomenons that was not an American-made film. Everybody's like, oh, you've got to see Battle Royale. That was one of the first movies that like happened for me. I was like, It was his last film. He died right after. Last time I and that's what's wild about this director. Like, he's been working forever, and hit the last movie he ever made was still, like, a phenomenon that, like, crossed over the borders of different countries. Yeah. It's really made, wild. He made film after film in his career that had brief little flare-ups of, like, oh, everybody was talking about it. As we'll explore, there's a reason why Virus was never one of those films, and it wasn't because it wasn't considered good. Because it generally was considered good. But we'll get into that. This is a cross-Japanese-American production. He actually had started a production company that was that kind of the goal was to do more and more, like, using American actors to come in so you could sell to like the West as well as to the East. And in fact, at the time of release, this ended up being the most expensive Japanese film ever made, which was $16 million, which sounds super, super quaint. I believe it. I I really enjoyed this movie. It was long as fuck. It took me three days to watch. (laughs) It's very, very. Okay. So there's multiple cuts of this film out there. The one we watched that is the general one you can find, which is on Tubi is 156 minutes, which is, you know, two and a half hours. Is that considered the Japanese cut of the film? Because it's, it does have the kind of the happier ending. That is the original yes. cut that played to the Cannes Film Festival, yeah. which was the, the worldwide debut of the film. But this never got an American theatrical release, like, at all. Uh, even internationally, they tried, and it, nobody went to go see it, didn't make any money. So the U.S., it just didn't get a release. It was sold directly to pay television and then immediately onto home video, where it was cut for pay TV to 108 minutes, and then it was cut even further down to, I believe, oh, 99 geez. minutes. And the version on Tubi has, like, not translated subtitles yeah. at That points. was honestly yeah. one of my favorite parts, <laughs> because I, I had on subtitles, I have this fun thing called an auditory processing disorder, which sometimes means that you can say something to me, and I can repeat those sounds back to you, and they still don't make words in my brain. Oh, I see why you like Pontypool so much. But, <laughs> oh, but I'm very excited to talk about Pontypool, but this one... I found very, very interesting and I had a deep appreciation for because I had those sections where I could not understand any of the words, but I absolutely understood what was happening in the scene, Mm. even without being able to understand a language. Oh, we have a pregnant lady. Oh, hey, this is happening. This is happening. The emotions were able to be conveyed through the acting without understanding a single word. Yeah, and it, I think that's beautiful. As I was watching, and they mainly happened towards the end, I think there was a point where I was like, okay, this feels like this may have been a bit of after-the-fact over-explaining to like go, like, this is what this character is experiencing, when we didn't necessarily need to be told that. But the story here, this is set in 1982, so... The Soviets! The, the distant future of 1982. 
1982. So we see an East German scientist and a group of Americans that are sort of making, negotiating about something called MM88, which is a deadly virus, but they've got it in like a ice block. And of course, everything goes wrong. A <laughs> plane that's carrying it crashes. We see it like lying open in the snow, which by the way, goes directly against things we hear later in, one, one in the film. One thing between the crazies <laughs> and this movie is don't transport viruses by air. It can go wrong. <laughs> but I mean, this is not a fun sex virus. This kills you super, super fast. And people all over the world are dying to the point where like they're calling the Italian flu because Italy is the first country that cases start popping up. I thought up. that was interesting. This I was, thought that was because of the Chinese flu. Yeah, definitely as sure. far as the like idea of something actually happening that I enjoyed the most. The idea that this is not a creature on its own, but that it attaches to other existing viruses and just ups its rate to be able to reproduce. Again, this is the two of two movies in which we did not have people bleeding from their eyes. That's true. Because the actual mechanism of infection was not that this was a terror on its own, but that any other virus that existed, it just made super badass. And that was really neat. I I enjoyed the shit out of that explanation. It just moved too fast and was too contagious. And before you knew it, most of the world's population has died off. And this is like not even at the halfway point of the Oh, you have polio? Oh, you have the flu? It doesn't matter. It's 17 times worse than it would have been otherwise. But they do discover that the virus is inactive at temperatures that are very, very low. And right off the bat, we see that there's people who are stationed in Antarctica who it's not happening to them. There's no effect because it can't survive there, which once again goes against (laughs) the thing where we saw the virus when it initially came out on a snow-covered mountain. from the general, like, (laughs) geological isolation that Antarctica As well, yeah. (laughs) But they do say this is so deeply airborne that Mm -hmm. at one point it's like a couple years after it was initially brought out into the wild, they still can't go into New York City because yeah, it's just so prevalent in the I do air. want to point out, they do acknowledge like it crashes in the snow and it's like six months later where it starts to pick up because it's the winter. I'm sure there was some fucking husky that ran to some substation. They they do talk about thaws and like being able to move ships that you couldn't move before because of the ice. So at some point, there was presumably a warmer point in time in which this virus was like... (laughs) So uh, we see that like these scientists, they're trying to figure out what's going on. We see the president of the United States, played by Cliff Robertson, who is trying to figure out what to do. There's nothing, there's literally nothing to do. And of course, the worst of them all, like this is definitely one of those ones playing on like, we gotta stop being such dicks. Played by Henry Silver as the commander of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You don't know him, he was in Ghost Dog, he was in the Manchurian Candidate. You know him. Who is like, no, we should nuke though, we set up to nuke the Russians immediately. It's like, dude, we don't even know the, why, we have no evidence, right. not only no evidence the Russians are involved, but literally all their heads of state are dying of this. Why do you think the Russians did this? Because back then that's, you know, Anything Reagan. that happened, it was the Russians. That yeah. was also one of the points at the beginning of the movie that I really appreciated. You've seen the Disney Atlantis movie. You, I, the first thing that came through my mind when you see our one of our initial main characters is, oh, look, Milo Thatch, this little nerdy man sleeping in all of his books. Oh, no. But there's this moment they've seen kind of the devastation. This is years later from what ended up happening. You may never have the chance to see this kind of scenery again. And it's all of these 
nuked out bodies. Which is but, cool. But I there's like... this moment where one of the crewmates says some really racist fucking bullshit and they're immediately like, no, we do not have room for this in this time, in this place, you need to sit your ass and, down. And it spends a lot of time as both in Washington and then at the various stations as people are like, they can't let go, even at this time where most of the world's population is dying off and they don't yeah. even know how the human race is going to go on, still holding on to these petty hatreds based on like imaginary lines on a map. And that, that obviously plays a big part into this. This is a film that was trying to be very timely, but as it turns out that time is still going on. Uh, but it continues on, as said bad general, uh, after the president dies, goes, well, I'm going to do it myself, and goes down to the bunker underneath the White House. Automatic reaction sets system. Up the automatic reaction system says the moment there's like any sign the Russians are firing missiles, this will automatically fire missiles back at him. Even knowing that he was infected and going to die, this is the kind of dicks we're talking about here. Yeah. But then but we also it's... see if the American automatic reaction system goes off, the Soviet automatic reaction system also goes off. Right. So we're just tied Mutually right assured in. destruction. Yeah, it's like the perfect act breaker in this, like a full movie break where it's like maniacal laughter. Obviously dubbed in after oh, the fact. Because yes. you look at him and he's not even moving. Not it's even like, moving. It's like, ha 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 That wasn't happening. <laughs> Uh, but so it ends up with the guys who are in Antarctica who team up with a surviving submarine that's still out there going, hey, we got to send some people in here to go and try and shut down the system before this earthquake system, which conveniently for the purpose of the plot is about to go off. And the system will go, oh, we think that was a nuclear strike and we'll set off the nukes. Yeah. So this is the plot of this movie, which is very, very, very unrelentingly dark. Does in fact explore questions I did not expect them to. Like They're like, these are all Antarctic stations. Guess what? There weren't a lot of women there. And so the survivors of this plague, they're like, there's like 150 men and eight women. We're going to have to rethink all of our cultural norms when it comes to to childbirth and sex and relationships. There's there's a point where there's a meeting of the council, and this is the council, some of the few who have survived, who are in positions of authority. We've had a little bit of this council scene, and then they cut to this scene of a woman, and they're like, hey, this woman has been raped. What are we going to do about it? And it goes immediately from, we have to think about the survival of the human race and these instincts, the will to reproduce. Then uh, after they've talked about this and like, yes, she was raped, but also we have more things to consider than we did before. And they immediately turn to the one woman on the council who is also a scientist. And they're like, what do you think, doll? Please, please be on the right side. We've just gone from this conversation of she's been raped, but like it's the instinct to breed to immediately well, one woman will have to accommodate more than one man if we can overcome our will with reason. Being raped versus the will to be bedded by whoever the fuck because the Who drew the lottery. Yeah, yeah, and it's a very deep contrast because they're like, oh, well, you know, human instincts, but then they were like, ah, well, can you override your instincts, maybe? It's a weird, like... (laughs) It's a weird, complicated thing that it, it ultimately you like. You could make a whole movie just about yeah. and it's that. Oh yeah, concept. and it's really yeah. awkward and like wrong-minded in this movie. But it's bold that they're even trying to have that conversation in this like 1980 disaster movie yeah. that they address it. It's sort of admirable that they like even broach the subject, even though it does fall down to the line of like, well, the guy who raped someone should clearly be like exiled, and it's not just like, oh, your instinct to breed made you rape someone. Like, <laughs> control yourselves. 
But then, like, the deeper conversation of, like, multiple men have to have, like, these women have to have babies by different men to thin the gene pool as much as we can. Like, yeah. that idea is... That's sticky. horror. It's yeah. weird. That's fucking horror, well, yeah. man. Considering, it's really, it's really considering when this tricky. came out and how tricky of a conversation that would be in any circumstance, I actually thought they handled it relatively well. They as, did. For its, the era, for its yeah. era. For its era. For its era. Yeah, I was ago, like, yeah. this is not anywhere near as squicky as I was afraid it was about to get. Yeah. No, like, it was oh. wholeheartedly serious and like well thought out. Because and I was like, yeah, this is... <laughs> they approach it completely scientifically. It's like, we understand 100% how you must be feeling right now. Of course, you are the world's most valuable man natural resource that a continuation was, I have of that in my notes a natural resource and, the, and the, the woman who has been raped breaking down and being like how can we live like this because now that is what I am mm-hmm. I am a natural resource right and, and, but the, the, of that coming to that kind of confrontation of everything that you've ever felt about sexuality and culture and relationships and all that is just gone just gone and it doesn't matter whether or not you still feel that way and they never go to well if you don't say yes we'll force you they never even address that no this is the situation they basically go we want you to understand this to the point where you go we get it and obviously this is what we have to do even if nobody is happy about it I think it's interesting that the point that they played on was that you'll have to accommodate multiple men and not you're going to be a baby making machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what was the porn version of this like? Unfortunately, I haven't seen that yet. But yeah, but, but it, it, it's definitely as a handmaidens. Oh yeah, feel to it for sure. But the, the, the part of that conversation that affected me, or the, at least that scene, is when they go over to the shot of this. All the women actually sitting there, yeah. realizing what they're saying. You mm-hmm. know, and they're very young women too, and they're they're going, "Oh, this is going to be like our reality you now mm-hmm. for a little while." That, that I like that they were kind of cutting like that. I'm pretty sure that that scene. Did not make it into the TV edit. I, I don't know. If yeah, it, I don't. Not, but that was, not, I'm sure, like that, the USA was buying it to run. It was like uh, that's yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was also one thing that I really appreciated about this. It's the mid 70s, and there are not a lot of people of color in anything anywhere. And so you have this one African American lady who comes in and she like hands him a report and like says one line, but then once you get to the next cut of the scene, she is the one defending. The woman who has been raped and is like, hey, what the hell are we going to do with this? What is wrong with you people? And can I point out a very, very young, all but unrecognizable Edward James Olmos yeah. as one of the cast members in this. The cast is like Sonny Chiba's in this thing. Yeah, Sonny Chiba, George Kennedy. Yeah. Right, so Sonny Chiba, George Kennedy, Robert Vaughn, Chuck Connors, Olivia Hussey, who was the lead in Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mind you, as well as the first version of Romeo and Juliet I ever saw that had lots of sex and nudity in it. So it was kind of one Woo-hoo! of those like, hey, I think I just grew a pubic hair. <laughs> Several chest flips. Well, once feathers. you get through the entire movie, at least with this ending, seeing Olivia Hussey at the end greet you, you know, and, and say, like, you've made it this far. You know, we've, this, here's a new world. You're back. At least he it's Olivia it. Hussey, actually, that, that's the one that's greeting him. Well, uh, and the star, really, of this film is this Japanese actor, Maseo Kusakari. He had a brief but prolific film career, but apparently in the 70s and 80s, he was so fucking good looking that there would be like magazine, international magazine articles about him going, is this the best looking man in the world? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> and my, you look my... at him in here and you're like, he might have been. He is a really good looking dude. My, my roommate came in and he, well, I was watching this movie and he was like, that is a classically handsome man. And I was like, not only is he a classically handsome man, he is a classically handsome Japanese scientist. And that's like really hard to pull off. And like, he aced that shit. Can introduce him to mom, yeah. <laughs> For real though. The backstory stuff 
kind of feels a little crowbarred in here. We don't even need it necessarily, but like it just expands the running time, but it serves one purpose, which is to give us a person we can pay attention to back on the mainland, which is that said Masio Kusakari had a girlfriend who, as far as he knew, may or may not be pregnant. She was, in fact, pregnant. When we're not looking at the president and his advisors, the only other person we're really looking at on the mainland is her and her experience in Japan. And it helps to serve, like, with the cast this large, to focus in on, okay, like, this is our main character. Mm-hmm. This section of this movie, like, I feel like he's not in it for, like, 45 minutes at one point. But he's still isn't, because there's so many characters, and it's one of those, like, true epics. The movie's really broken up into, like, three different types of movies, and there's, like, that section towards the end where it kind of turns into, like, one of those, like, Earthquake or Towering Inferno, right. like, natural disaster movies Tower that were, like, huge then. I really enjoy the scale of it. It is maybe a full hour too long for what it is, but I it's appreciate... It's two and a half hours, my dude! I appreciate, <laughs> the, Maddie, I appreciate the epicness of it. Like. Yeah, I mean, overall, I quite like this. There are points I'm like, you could have lost a lot of this, but it's not boring either. It's just a long movie. Oh, you know, I, 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 I said earlier, I, I watched this over the course of three days and so what what would happen is i would get through about an hour of it and i have actually just started watching game of thrones after all of these years somebody finally suckered me into it and so what i would do is i I would watch about an hour of this and with company i'd be like okay i've taken a page of notes do you want to watch something fun because (laughs) it's such a good movie but also my soul was like The one part of this movie that kind of lost me was the very last 10 minutes where, like I said, the main character guy, the the super handsome Japanese dude, he's at ground zero of a nuclear blast. Thank you, yes! Underground, but still, I'm like, Army of the Dead, anyone? Yeah! uh, And just somehow survives and walks across the entire world. Walk! Yeah! Down to South America! Machu Picchu! There's a bit where they use Machu Picchu footage! Yeah, he's at one point at Machu Picchu, and then he's in Antarctica, and you're like, what the fuck is that? Just some stock footage of Machu Picchu, just put, put it right in there. That whole last sequence where he finally, he's reunited with the girl that I guess they were gonna be in love on some level, which in this future is the like end a was weird irrelevant. sort of love. The last was 20 so minutes is irrelevant. Goofy, like there's like swelling strings well, and as they run towards ending. each other across a beach, and I'm like, I know! This is <laughs> right before everyone's like going, we're not gonna make it, are we? You're like, no, you're no! not! You're not gonna make it! Humanity is doomed! <laughs> weird add-on. As much as I did not find it appropriate to the end of the movie to have that sort of happy ending, there is, however, an anime series (laughs) called Dr. Stone in which there's this weird things that happens, but over the course of several millennia, everybody gets turned to stone, and then eventually people wake up. It's like, you're preserved, basically, in the stone. But at the end of that movie, there's, you know, the little village of people who have survived in the coming back. That was the vibe that I got from it. Was, you might was want this, to get oh, look, end of the world, let's continue mm-hmm. life as this little group of humans, and I really enjoyed that. Interesting about that happy ending of this, I believe that's the Japanese ending, right? The one should, we saw is the Japanese Yeah, guy. and the, I, I looked it up, and the American ending... As after the blast happens, there's this shot of Antarctica and then the credits roll. That's which, a lot darker. Which is the, yeah. like usually the American ending, they soften things, and it's interesting that the American ending is like, nah, bomb goes off, everyone's doomed. Nah. Yeah. 
Which yeah. is a better ending, but it's mm. a pretty bleak movie, so I could see the need but for like. There was stuff like this in the eighties coming out. Do you remember the day after mm. was a miniseries that was on a huge American hit. So TV? Maybe that's that, why they kind of huge that. hit yeah. that was like, yeah, we don't make it. And then mm. Threads, which was the Threads, British equivalent uh, of it, mm. was saying like, yeah, it's not. This isn't going to work. But all of these things are like saying, if we don't stop fucking around with Russia, then yeah. we're all going to die. Cold like, War, Cold War. <laughs> Generation X likes to go. You know why we're like more resistant to terrible things happening because we all. All grew up being told we're all going to die. You're all going to die. He dies, she dies, <laughs> so everybody dies. Prepare yourself because anytime now, Russian nukes are coming and we're all going to die. Did you know that if you crouch under your school desk <laughs> with your hands over your head, you it might, might get, protect you? You might get splinters. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to our last film of this particular show, Pontypool. Yes! Which I know that you guys were anxious to talk about. This is directed by very prolific, but cult director, Bruce McDonald. I know. I've seen a handful of his films. After watching this, I thought for sure it was directed by, like, first or second time filmmaker, like, a lot of ideas... And I, was, I looked him up. I was like, oh, nope, he's been making shit since the late 80s. Well, he's probably even better known for his 1996 film, Hardcore Logo, than he is for this one. I mean, horror nerds certainly know Pontypool. When it hit festivals, it was a sensation. Because people were like, what the fuck is this thing? Mm-hmm. And it was written by this author, Tony Burgess. And it was actually based on the middle book of a trilogy he wrote of films. Right. This book called Pontypool Changes Everything. Incidentally, there's a spinoff movie of this movie that exists that I have seen. In fact, I own it, and I will talk about that in a while. This film, which stars the great and deeply underappreciated Stephen McCaddy, is in the small town of Pontypool, Ontario, which is is actually a real place. It is. But it one is. of the reasons it was chosen is because Typo is in the middle of it, which apparently is a big deal uh. in the books. There's a sequel to this film that is being written and has been being written for years, and it's unclear if it'll be made, but apparently focuses on the written word rather than the spoken word. It is, in fact, a virus film. Stephen McCaddy is a shock jock in this small town and appears new to this particular station, newish. And he's very new. Yeah, and he's kind of trying to impress the young new hire girl who seems to like him, but meanwhile really annoying the fuck out of the station manager who is played by his real-life wife. Incidentally, that character's named Sydney, played by Lisa Hull, set assistant Laurel Ann, played by Georgina Riley, who is known for a lot of different TV shows like Murdoch Mysteries. And then the movie This Movie is Broken, which I, I guess was sort of a music movie about broken social scene. Okay, yeah, because I know the, the last time I, I spoke with Bruce McDonald not too long ago and for the movie Dreamland, mm-hmm. and he was saying that they're trying to get a musical made. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. The, of, of Dreamland? Yeah, well, no, then also like, he's, he's a huge fan of Broken Social Scenes, so they're still working okay. together. Yeah, because it's like a... Canada. It's, mm, it's not yeah. a documentary, but it's film around Broken Social Scene, and they're in it, but it's a narrative. I yeah. haven't seen it. I, can't, Either I, I know. I remember when people were talking about it. Anyway, so he's on the air, and they start hearing about weird shit going on in their town. In fact, specifically their, quote, helicopter reporter, who is not <laughs> really in a helicopter. He just has a sound effect of a helicopter. <laughs> That's plays. a great little break in things. Great yeah. little gag. Uh, so there's apparently some sort of riot going on, and people are dying. And of course, because... Grant, the shock jock, is a shock jock. He wants to really focus on this because this is actual news and not boring shit in a small town that he could give a fuck about, which he's from the beginning like, God, why am I here? Why am I here? And then his his manager is also like, please don't do this. Why are you here? (laughs) Your job is not to get numbers. Your job is to provide a service to this town. So stop it with that shit. And he's like, but the numbers. (laughs) But things get serious real quick as it starts taking off and the BBC contact them going, 
uh, you guys broke the story. What is happening? And she starts to realize that some shit is really going on. We actually hear back from the helicopter reporter <laughs> saying the riders are trying to eat each other or sometimes themselves. Apparently, some of the audio in the sequence was like sequenced from other famous horror films that they oh, that's is kind of like okay. a little Easter egg. The virus goes back to William S. Burroughs' idea of language is a virus. Yes. That language itself is an infection that you get and spreads. If, if you never read William S. Burroughs' ideas about that, they're actually kind of fascinating, like a sort of recontextualization of how we think about language. And it's never clear where did this come from? What ha- Is this an attack by some advanced civilization from outer space? I mean, we just don't ever know. But people are going crazy, wandering around, repeatedly saying the same words over and over again, and then attacking people. A word people, gets infected. Yeah, and trying to bite their faces. They find this French transmission. They translate it and says, don't use any terms of endearment, like honey, like lover. Speaking to children. Whatever. Any sort of rhetorical discourse. In fact, if you cannot speak in the English language, that's the best. Because yeah. the English language is the only one that is infected. infected. It follows these characters who try and figure out, well, what do we do? How do you fight this? Like, should we not talk to each other Parlez-vous Being fluent in French, this movie was very exciting for me. I absolutely adored this, and like, this was one of those ones I also watched with company, and so being able to sit there and be like, whisper, 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 this is what they just said, let me translate this for you. I was like, yes! It's interesting that it goes from kind of a remote bottle movie zombie film, which by the way, there's also a BBC version of this film that came out at the same time as this as a radio play, because you could totally do this whole oh, film yeah. as a radio play, obviously, and they, in fact, did. Yeah. As you watch it go from what seems to be like a War of the Worlds type thing, where it's like, oh, we're reporting on events as we hear them, to these characters taking the information they have, which is bizarre, not like any zombie movie you've ever seen, and trying to negotiate these high levels of yeah. cerebral thought around language, it gets really complex on some levels. Like, this is it not really a, good. This is not a dumb movie. No! no. See, well, this is where I might defer from all of it. I think this movie's first act is pretty much perfect. Like, I was all in. The, the directing's really assured. It's really creepy. And it's confusing and confounding in all, like, the fun ways. And it's a classic thing of, like, where the premise is so good. And I don't know if, like, the movie's production or if this, how filmable is this idea, really? As the movie goes on and it gets a little bigger in its ideas and what they need to show and convey, it starts to get a little shaggy to me hmm. as it went on like i think the first and second act i was like so hooked into it like mm-hmm. the way they show people getting infected with the virus essentially yeah. with the language repeating and then the call-ins and like the confusion of what's really happening all those things are so played so well all the performances are really good and the, all the performances are good throughout yeah and the ideas there throughout as third acts and horrors of big ideas it just never got to a satisfying idea even even though it's not meant to be a satisfying like conclusion to a story but its unsatisfying conclusion wasn't satisfying. So upon rewatching way. it, I thought to myself, in the third act, this movie turns from Night of the Living Dead into Cloud Atlas. You're dealing with these super crazy concepts. You're running through them really, really fast. And the plot is moving at a breakneck speed in terms of people exploring from all these to, ideas. From not to 60. <laughs> and, and, and there's indeed, it's kind of a zombie film in the sense that when we see these people, like the assistant is the one that gets infected yes. and it's so really creepy. graphic and brutal as she's like bites her own lip and off. That's some of the most affecting scenes when oh, she's yeah. first going in. Yeah. And then you hear the crowd chanting. That shit is so good. Is not what happens when you are infected and you transmit it to somebody else, but what happens to your body when the virus is not. 
mm-hmm. successful in infecting somebody else. Some of the conversations around this film with the director I found absolutely fascinating, where he said they're not zombies, they, he called them conversationalists, which is interesting. Uh, and he says, the first stage is you might begin to re- repeat a word. Something gets stuck. And usually it's words of endearment. The second stage is your language becomes scrambled and you can't express yourself properly. The third stage is that you become so distraught at your condition that the only way out of the situation you feel, as an infected person, is to try and chew your way through the mouth of another person. Which is such a bizarre series of ideas that led them to how can we turn language as a virus as an idea into a basically zombie movie. As far as we know currently, right? This is not a valid point of fear or concern, but... Valid point. There, there is... Valid uh, point. I'm a big Doctor Who. Nerd. Valid point. That, valid point. God damn it, Chris. Valid point. Uh, there, there, there's valid an point is flaccid joint. Of Doctor Who at one point, I believe it's called the Midnight Planet. There's this planet that's totally racked by radiation from the sun, but it's full of these beautiful crystals, and absolutely nothing can live outside of these domes that we have created that are protected from this radiation. But obviously, it's a Doctor Who episode, and there are tours of this planet. Yeah, that was the one we, with the actress who was yes! supposed to play uh, uh, the bionic woman. In yes, 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 yes! That's exactly the episode. Yeah. And so you have this mimic creature, and there's no distinct explanation of how this thing transmits or how this creature goes from one person to another, but it's that whole mimicking thing of, I will repeat, but also it's entirely tied into the language. And as far as concepts of horror go, even though it is not necessarily wholly entire scientifically sound, it's very interesting and fun to play. And then you're the, right, that the concept is where it's at, right, in this yeah. movie. What does everyone think of the Doctor's performance? The actor playing the Doctor when he comes in. He's obviously playing the narrative device. Let me device. climb out the window, climb in the window, climb out the window! Yeah, Harant Alianak. He's coming in to, like, kind of explain more into what's happening. When he comes in, though, I feel like he is operating on a different wavelength than the rest of the actors in the movie are. It, it's the first thing that, like, I was like, what is this now a lot of stuff before that was like what is this why is this but it was all deepening my curiosity and this one it was just like what is this it's not really meshing with the rest I, of the doctor I, feels I, more I like a plot not, device too i think yeah. sometimes yeah it, so it's you know he's coming in you know at this point in the script this, there needs to be a new character that comes in but yeah exactly. he does seem to be on another way he, he's also I, the introduction to the idea in the film though that maybe there's a way around this yeah like maybe there's a idea a way of thinking because this is all about a way of thinking is the virus. Maybe there's a way of thinking that beats this. He's the first person to introduce that. His performance, he seems like so like nonchalant about what's happening. Or there's something about it. That does he knows not, too much. It does not mesh with. And the that might have been the, the whole. The yeah, whole it may be. Story, have, yeah, but. I, I did not expect him to come into the play of things because part of the beginning of this movie, when things start to go wrong, this is the doctor where yeah. all of the rage. And all of the riots started around his office. So part of his character is like, oh yes, I've seen 57 cases of this today. There was definitely, I don't want to say so much a disconnect, mm-hmm. but definitely a shift in things as to where I did not expect this man to show up. I expected this man to be dead, but also he had an entirely different take on things. There were certain points in this movie in which we developed a new realization or discovered something where I was like, 
I love y'all, but y- y'all aren't smart enough for that. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't smart enough for it at points. Well, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> that's, I think that's where I started to fall off, is like the leaps of like logic that they take. Yes. Which are the right answers. It's like, you're a radio host, you're a doctor who's not really conveying well, that, information. That's that why clearly. it reminded me of like Cloud Atlas, where it was like, here's this barrage of like pseudoscience within the context of the story that everybody comes to so fast because we got to get it out because we're telling this story that's based on crazy cerebral ideas, but nobody actually thinks that way. It's where I fell off the movie The Train because, like, through the first two acts, everyone's confused. It is confusing. It's scary. It's well-directed. It's well-acted. And then when they start to, like, gain this knowledge of, like, even though it's, like, a piece of what may be going on, it's for the movie function and not like what a character would get yes, to. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's like, it took me it's out of it and I was blatant. like, I was kind of bummed by it because like, I was like, fuck, this thing is rolling. Like, I am all in. I was like, I can't believe I've never seen this before. I'm, it was I excellent. love this fucking movie. And then by the end, it dipped off and it was like a bummer for me for that reason. Can I mean, it's a little it's too still, high concept for its own, its own good. Yeah. yeah. And not, not even the it's, concept in itself was too high, but the way that our characters came about making sense of everything and these realizations that based on everything that we've seen up to this point with this character it just doesn't flow yeah Yeah. it's like they come to the realization because it's in the script and not because they would have gotten to the realization like from what we've seen so far even in that third act where like i think the script is kind of failing it Mm -hmm. the directing and the performances are still very good yeah this is so well worth seeing even if the third act kind of loses you because you've never seen anything really like this on multiple levels For sure. it, it is a standalone film now we've got to wrap up because we're out of time but <laughs> i will say as i said when we started this i really want to talk about the weirdest fucking thing in this movie <laughs> happens after the credits are over so you have to stay to the very oh, yes. end of the and there's this total non sequitur black and white coda that shows the two stars of this film and some sort of film noir thing it was so funny like what we're does it have to do with, the world what does it have to do with anything well here's the secret it doesn't yeah it was actually just i got this other script for a movie called dreamland that i want these guys to star in which didn't get made until years after this but it was like his like hey i got the script i'd like people to go ask what is that and he's like i'm glad you asked i'm glad you asked he said movie has come out which did star stephen mccaddy and is fucking bizarre Mm -hmm. i don't know if i go so far as to call it good but i enjoyed watching it rollins in it you got juliette lewis yeah you've got a vampire i enjoyed uh, watching it because it's so strange Stephen mccaddy plays twins and one of them is basically chet baker it's funny i just instinctively knew it was like this is him and his friends who made this movie doing something fun i knew immediately it had no connection to the story i just watched i could just feel it this is a little squad and they're like making cool shit like i like it well we will be back next week with another episode where we're going to finish out our virus series with a look at the 2009 film Carriers, which I had never seen before. In fact, I didn't even know about it until I started doing research on virus films. I'm like, wait, Chris Pine is this film? Yes! Like, how did I miss this? It's my least favorite movie out of the ones we've watched! (laughs) And then Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, uh, which was the one that most people are going to point at us, go, that's not a horror movie, dude. Like, yes, I know, but I actually found it the scariest of any of these movies. realistic. uh, Because of its sheer realism and high quality of filmmaking. And then... In the Earth, which just came out this year, which is by one of my favorite cult directors, Ben Wheatley, that has totally split horror fans. You either love it or you really don't get it. I gotta say I fall on the... You know what? We'll talk about it next week.